Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. As we get ready to close the book on 2020, there were a few surprises for national parks this past week. Kilauea Volcano at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park started a new series of eruptions. Congress passed an omnibus bill that renames New River Gorge National River as a national park and preserve. Saguaro National Park gained more than 1,100 acres. And Chaco Culture National Historical Park gained some protections against oil and gas drilling. We also shared with you a story about a walk along the Grand Portage Trail in Minnesota, Word that Golden Spike National Historical Park in Utah will stage its holiday steam festival on December 29th, 30th, and 31st. And news that more of Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado is opening to the public after some areas burned by wildfires in the fall were deemed safe to enter. You can read those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this, our last episode for 2020... We look back on the past 12 months in the parks with Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association. And we also take a peek ahead at the task for the Biden administration in the realm of parks and public lands. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, and that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The past 12 months have been an extremely trying time due to the coronavirus pandemic. It's disrupted our lives, the economy, and even how we tried to find a way to safely escape confinement. While COVID-19 perhaps was the most disruptive event to impact the National Park Service and the park system this past year, it wasn't the only one. There was the border wall construction and the impacts it brought to the parks, such as at Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument and Coronado National Memorial, the crush of visitors to parks, many visitors new to experiencing national parks, and of course the passage of the Great American Outdoors Act, which carries promise of enabling the Park Service to make serious inroads on its maintenance backlog. 
To look back on 2020 in the park system, we've asked Kristen Bringle of the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks to join us. Welcome back to The Traveler. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Kurt. Is it, is it safe to say that COVID-19 is the biggest story to impact the parks this year? I mean, it, it impacted the park service, the park staff, the concessionaires, even the visitors who came out to the national parks or who couldn't go out to the national parks. I think it's a combination of COVID-19 and overcrowding in some parks that were big issues. In, in terms of dealing with the pandemic, when the early days first happened and we were all sort of trying to figure things out, the interior department indicated that it was going to give superintendents the ability to make decisions for staff and for equipment and so on and so forth. And what ended up happening, and you saw this unfold over time, Kurt, is that they weren't taking all the precautions that they could be taking. and it, got increasingly more difficult for parks to shut down because they didn't have any PPE or equipment for the staff people. So health and safety of staff and visitors were not put first in every case. And this culminated in the story on Grand Canyon where they they just were not going to shut the Grand Canyon down even though they had no safety precautions in place and concessioners were um, testing positive for COVID. And so, and what was really amazing about it was as the story unfolded, you know, we found out that Interior was lying to the public about how they were receiving information from the county, from the tribes. And we had that email, that internal email from the Grand Canyon staff saying that David Vela, the regional director, everyone had signed off on closure of the park, but the Interior Department wasn't allowing it to happen. So it was sort of mishandled and botched in many parks from the beginning. And then as parks started to get safety equipment and figured out the the employee housing situation and so forth, then I think the unexpected thing happened, which was the American public just started gravitating toward parks from the spring to summer. And it became very overwhelming for park staff because they had literally half the seasonal staff they usually have because of having to house less people because of COVID. And so, and now we're learning that since the interior department wasn't telling the public about how many park staff and concessioners were developing COVID um, and had positive cases, now we're starting to learn and it's leaking out how many park staff actually did test positive for COVID. So hopefully at some point we'll know the full story of 2020 in the parks, but right now we don't. Phil, I guess park park staff was really pinched too because uh, at one point they were basically told that uh, a shortage of staff isn't a, isn't a reason to keep parts of parks closed. Well, that's not the way I see it. That's for sure. Uh, but if you remember, uh, Secretary Bernhardt used fee money to help keep parks open back last January and February. And it was later learned, of course, that that was a misuse of those funds. And we felt that way really strongly all along. And then not only was it affecting staff and morale of staff and putting our staff at risk, it was putting the public at risk and neighboring communities at risk. And then there was the problem that we've had during every shutdown we've ever had, and also now with COVID, 
you know, damage to park resources all around the country. Uh, trash being left on the ground, feces, unclean facilities. I mean, there was a myriad of problems that could have been prevented had the had there been a national strategy. I think I think one of the biggest disappointments to me was the fact, as Kristen mentioned, that people weren't telling the truth, but that they politicized this to the extent that they did. Uh, that they said to parks, well, you can close as long as the local governments say it's okay. Well, you know, when you have uh, communities where there's only seven hospital beds and people were becoming infected, infected with, uh, with COVID-19, maybe because people were attracted to the parks and, and are encouraged, not only attracted, but encouraged to go to the parks uh, by this administration. You know, you're putting park employees, visitors, and, and the communities all at risk. And then on top of that, you know, later in the year, you know, there as, a, as the political campaign began to heat up, you know, there was misuse of the parks for political reasons, you know, and I guess one of the first ones was Mount Rushmore, uh, where the president attended. There was no social distancing. Uh, there had been fires in, in previous events in the past. Uh, it, it was just a, a incredible mix of misjudgments. So I think that, um, you know, looking forward, we've got a lot of work to do. We being the American public in support of our parks, organizations like ours, you know, to help address these problems, fill some jobs, work on morale issues and support, uh, support our parks. Yeah. You know, Yellowstone National Park uh, throughout the year put out uh, monthly totals of infections among park staff and concession staff. But we really don't know whether COVID infections were a serious problem across the park system, do we? I mean, uh, Kristen, you mentioned that some numbers are starting to leak out. Uh, what have you heard? It's just what's been reported so far in terms of positive COVID cases. But we have been hearing um, sort of May, June about park rangers as far as Alaska, all over the country, testing positive for COVID. We heard about quarantining at um, in terms of park housing and having to set aside some places for staff to quarantine. But it was sort of anecdotal stories that we were hearing. But when I checked in with park superintendents and some regional directors individually, the one thing that they offered to me is <clears throat> morale is incredibly low. Staff aren't feeling supported. And please, if Biden wins, please make sure that there's a face mask policy um, and it's no longer voluntary. And I think that's really been a sore spot for staff and it should be that not having a voluntary or having a voluntary face mask policy has really been the separation between what state and local governments have had to put in place. But then when you get to the park border, you have a voluntary policy. And so it's putting park staff at more risk than anywhere else in the state or counties in some ways. And so we just need, you know, better policies. And what we're hearing so far from some parks is that going into next year, they don't have all the equipment they need or cleaning supplies that they need going into next spring. So 
this new administration coming in is really going to have to focus on making sure that health and safety comes first when it comes to dealing with COVID in the parks. But but do we have any any numbers of COVID infections across the the park service? Phil, I know your organization has has filed um, several FOIA requests to try and get some of that information. I think the number is six now. And, six FOIAs, uh, not not six infections. So every month we've been sending a FOIA request, and we haven't received an answer to any of our requests, uh, which is quite amazing. And certainly one of the things looking forward that has to occur is, is uh, like the old park service used to be, and that is transparent. We, we need transparency. So yeah, I actually saw that an, an employee passed away uh, recently, a park service employee that had been infected with COVID. Uh, and I just saw the headline, so I don't, I didn't have a chance to read the article yet, but I'm going to, but uh, I don't, you know, it seems to me that employees have should be able to know and visitors should be able to know whether or not there's infections in our national parks. And so something can be done about it and it can be managed and not and not just rely upon the local health department who may be influenced by political reasons. I, I remember Secretary Bernhardt coming to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, you know, the nation's most visited national park. And uh, no mask. None of the employees, the secretary didn't have a mask on. There were numerous pictures of him in campgrounds and up on Plymouth's Dome, and there were no masks. Uh, what a message that was sending. And at the same time, we were getting calls, and I'm sure Kristen was, was talking with people and getting the same information. People were scared, very afraid for their lives, the lives of their coworkers, the lives of their families, and, and, the, and the people who they worked and lived with in the communities. Well, COVID's certainly not going to go away quickly. It's, it's ramping up around the country, and it's certainly good news to hear that the vaccines are coming, and hopefully they'll be effective, and people won't be afraid to get them, because um, we, we certainly have to get our arms around this uh, pandemic and and put it out of our misery. Another big story for 2020 was the Great American Outdoors Act. It's expected to help parks attack what has been described as a roughly $12 billion maintenance backlog, though Interior some time ago stopped putting a number on the backlog, so it could be uh, more than $12 billion or less than $12 billion. We really don't know. But that said, um, the list of projects lined up for the first round of funding certainly sound deserving. I mean, ranging from re-roofing the Mammoth Cave Hotel at Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky, replacing the Lewis River Bridge in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, and improving visitor facilities at places such as Glacier Bay National Park in Alaska and Sequoia National Park in California. What do you think of the work list? We knew lobbying on the issue for the past few years that the oldest some, in some cases, big parks had the most infrastructure problems. So we knew the water system, the water pipeline at Grand Canyon, the Loop Road at Yellowstone, any number of projects that a very large percentage of them were in the older parks. And it, it just makes sense. There hasn't been a huge injection of money into the National Park Service in such a long time that these things were eventually going to fall apart. So in some ways, the Park Service list is an accurate representation of 
the problems that have been happening in parks. The issue that I take with the list is when we lobbied on the bill in Congress, we talked about the highest and the high priority parks as ranked through a system that the Park Service career staff established in a database. And Kurt, you may remember, I remember because I was sitting in the hearing room um, back during the Bush administration, Fran Manella, who was the director of the Park Service back then said, we are going to create this database. We're going to create a system so we know all the work orders and we have a handle on these projects and they ranked them. And so when we lobbied on the Great Outdoors Bill, we brought these lists to Congress and showed members, here's the highest and high priority projects. And this is what we wrote into the bill. The bill says highest and high priority projects. And so that's the expectation. And that means the money gets spread out to not only the big parks that have high visitation, but also the sort of medium-sized parks that maybe don't get as much visitation, but need the money to protect and, and, and preserve the infrastructure. And so what the Trump administration did is their number one priority for how they're addressing the maintenance backlog is the most visited parks. And that's fine. That's a fine criteria to have um, because if people are flocking to those parks, then yes, making sure the roads and infrastructure are very good. But the expectation that was set was that the money would get spread out more. And so um, we are hoping that when the Biden administration comes in, that they take a look at that criteria and really take a look at geography and take a look at the lists that we previously had and make sure that the money is 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 really being spread around. Because this is really, these are America's parks. Even if something doesn't get high visitation, it's still getting visited. And we need to make sure the roofs on visitor centers and historic sites all over the country are getting repaired just as much as the roads and bridges and water lines. And so that was always the expectation. And so we just need to make sure we're keeping our promise. Phil, any thoughts on that? Well, I agree with Kristen. One of the things that I was concerned about right away was this uh, criteria for access. And if you're, if a project was going to provide for more access to a park, then it was going to get a higher score. Now, I do have a lot of confidence in the team of people who were working on the list. And I suspect, based upon the conversations that I've had, they've got a good list. What I fear is what happens to that list as it goes through the political folks in interior. Uh, the secretary's office has made it a... Um, common practice to approve everything. And so as that list, which is based upon good objective reasons, uh, goes up, uh, I hope that uh, the political process doesn't uh, change the priorities uh, so that access is the most important priority. You know, we've got to be concerned about protecting resources. We've got to be concerned about safety and welfare the visitor and our employees. And if some of these, uh, some of our needs aren't funded, the way the Park Service ranks uh, priorities, if a, if a project or if a building, for example, uh, gets in too bad of a condition, uh, then no further investment will be made in it. Uh, so, you know, we got to make sure, well, first of all, I understand why they, they pick the big parks and they, pick 
bigger projects that allow them to spend the money that's coming coming down the pike. Hopefully, now this next year they'll need to develop the capacity so that, and I think they are working on that very hard, so that more projects can be funded and more projects can go to contracting. They need more contracting officers. They need to fill jobs so that the personnel. So adequate staffing will be present to manage these projects or maybe contract uh, engineers. But they've got a lot of work to do going forward. So hats off to them, the, the professionals, the career staff who are working very, very hard. I, I spoke to someone yesterday about this, and, and I think they're really trying to do the best they can, given the circumstances, uh, to have a good list. Yeah, I will note that, um, you know, some of the money did filter down. I mean, at Saratoga National Historical Park up in upstate New York, you know, they're going to work on some some interpretive waysides and whatnot. And at uh, Colonial National um, Historical Park, they're going to do some infrastructure needs, water lines and whatnot. But but certainly, yeah, you look across the list and you see the Yosemites and the Yellowstones and the Shenandoahs. Grand Canyon wasn't there. And I guess with the Trans Canyon water pipeline, I think the park has been um, um, pigeonholing some money from its entrance fee revenues to, to pay for that. So I guess that's a $100 million lift that uh, doesn't have to be taken out of uh, the Great American Outdoors Act funding. Well, you know, Kurt, if you look at roads and parks, and roads are in bad shape. Yellowstone has always been in bad shape, you know, because of the nature of the park. Hundreds of millions of dollars would be needed in parks like Yellowstone, Blue Ridge Parkway, I think the number is like $600 million just to improve the roads. So there's some huge projects out there that uh, that need to be funded. Yeah, I see it at Blue Ridge, they're, they're planning to rehabilitate or construct, reconstruct 75 miles of road. So that, that's got to be a big help for that park. The question, of course, is it shovel ready, so to speak? How long will it take to, to get that project Underway. Well, and only 390 more miles after that. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking today Kurt, with, yes. No, I was just going to add something that doesn't inspire confidence is the fact that the Interior Department didn't follow through on the requirement to send the list to Congress. And so there were several weeks um, there that we had been wondering exactly how much money is going to each park. So Another key piece of this is that if we're going to continue to go to Congress and make sure parks get the funding they need, it is essential that Interior is transparent with Congress and not hiding numbers from them. But I have to say that everyone that we have been working with on Capitol Hill thought that it was absolutely ridiculous that Interior did not provide a full list of the expenses per park to Congress. And it's you know, I just kind of feel like it's like the last thing they're going to do before they leave is just, you know, futz around and not be honest with people and not do their due diligence. And what's really critical here and is that we have an opportunity potentially coming up with a transportation or infrastructure bill next year. And we still have, like you pointed out, uh, Kurt, billions of dollars in repairs that still need to be done, especially on the transportation side. And so... How do you make sure Congress feels like they're part of the process on fixing parks if you're not being transparent? And so it's it's really important that moving forward, this process is just done really well and, and um, to the extent that it can be. And we know the 
career staff are working really hard, um, but we just need to make sure the criteria is very clear, it matches people's expectations, and that we can go back to Congress next year and ask for the rest of the backlog money. You know, to your point, Kristen, about transparency, when the um, the list of projects came out, I, I did ask Washington, you know, why is there not a dollar amount attached to each project? And the response was that while they have finalized the list of projects, they want to ensure that they're maximizing every dollar entrusted to so We heard that Bernhardt didn't trust the Park Service staff, so he wanted to review every project individually. I mean, talk yeah. about micromanaging to the hilt. Yeah. The Park Service has been looking at these projects since the Bush administration. And yet, you know, you don't trust, just like you aren't taking care of the Park Service staff during COVID, you don't trust the same people to actually execute their jobs really well and know their parks really well. I mean, it's just a symptom of the continued disease that's been running through the political appointees over at the Interior Department. I mean, they just, they don't trust staff, they don't take care of staff. And that's, I think, what we saw with the outdoors bill implementation. Yeah, and, and the reorganization too, I think, you know, is, is to, to me, when they put more political people out in the field, you know, they wanted the eyes and ears of the political folks closer to the to the ground to keep an eye on the park service. Yeah, Phil, does it, the lack of uh, dollars attached to projects raise concerns that perhaps um, they're funding them to a certain level and not to fully rebuild or repair as is required? Well, you know, the numbers that are assigned to projects are are what's called Class C estimates. They're estimates, and a lot of times the numbers are different. But it it is helpful to have some idea about how how much a project is going to cost and what kind of investment is going to be made where. But uh, so it's, you know, I was a little bit disturbed. I wondered why it's the first time I've ever seen a list that didn't have the numbers attached to it. Um, so it uh, it raised my antenna. My cynicism level went up. But I just couldn't understand why they wouldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. We're talking today with Phil Francis, the chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Christian Brengel, Senior Vice President for Government Affairs of the National Parks Conservation Association, Looking back at the the past 12 months of 2020, and uh, when we come back after this break, we're going to take a short uh, look uh, at 2021. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. A 
Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Okay, we're back now with Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association and Phil Francis of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, talking about uh, the past 12 months in the national park system. And uh, we're going to take a, a look ahead to 2021 and the incoming Biden administration. Uh, before we get there, um, certainly the border wall continues to make news. NPR recently aired a story about how the work along the Arizona-New Mexico border is impacting the landscape. Have you heard anything recently about the environmental impacts at Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument and Coronado National Memorial in Arizona? I haven't I'll, heard it. I don't know much at all. I was just going to say, our, our staff person um, down in Arizona has been monitoring the situation, and we continue to be hugely concerned about how they just topple the cactus and create these sort of rights of way that are fairly large that require removal of all the vegetation in the area. And, and just the wall itself is just, if you look at where they're building it and how they're building it up the sides of hills and it's, it's an incredible feat, um, but it's completely destroying those areas. And organ pipe is just getting, you know, toppled because of the, the whole thing. And I mean, it's just, so depressing to think that this used to be, you know, a beautiful linked area with Mexico in terms of a landscape. And now it's just, you just see areas that are completely, you know, have no more vegetation on them because of all the bulldozers and, and the construction that's been happening down there. It's really depressing. Yeah, I know. Um, I guess they've had some uh, night lighting, so to speak, um, to help with construction, keep it moving around the clock. I don't know if they're going to continue shining lights on the, the, the fence once uh, um, the construction is done. I know uh, your, your colleague in, in Arizona, Kevin Dahl, has told me that um, you know they haven't been able to drive that southern road over to Quito Bikito Springs. And of course, earlier this uh, year, we heard that um, the level of the spring had really, really dropped. And there was a, a question of whether that was natural due to uh, the seasonal swings in, in moisture or whether some of the um, um, explosive work done to help with uh, construction was impacting the sources of the spring. So I guess that's certainly something that we'll have to be watching going forward. Yeah, I talked to Interior about it um, several weeks ago, and spe specifically the Quito Paquito Springs, and um, they did not have an answer and sort of threw their hands up from what I can tell in terms of making sure that area was protected. So it's the damage is going to be 
you know, something that we'll also need to take a look at in a new administration and just see what can be done um, hydrologically and in terms of um, stopping any more construction at this point and figuring out how to repair some of the damage and restore the areas. But um, what a monumental amount of damage done and for what, you know, because we can't look at surveillance. We can't look at other ways to, um, you know, look at illegal crossings. And you look at some of the other parks that are along the border and some of the non-wall um, surveillance projects that they have right now with uh, Department of Homeland Security and places like ben Big Bend aren't relying on a huge wall. Lake Amistad, you know, how do we figure out other preventative measures um, that address the same issues but use different types of uh, surveillance and you know, folks are going to look back on this wall building and just talk about how it just destroyed a desert landscape, a beautiful desert landscape that was worthy of park protection. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I think Phil, we're going to hear a lot after January 20th. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, I was going to say we've got a little more than a month um, before the, the Biden-Harris administration comes into office. Um, what are you hearing, if anything, with regard to how the Interior Department and the National Park Service will be handled in terms of funding and staffing? Well, you know, we're optimistic that the Congress is going to provide more funding, but we'll have to wait and see what happens in the Senate, I suppose. You know, it looks like there's a couple hundred million dollars in extra funding that may be coming to the National Park Service, hopefully. Uh, so that's good news. Is it enough? Not in my opinion. I think we'll need more. But we'll, once a new administration gets in and they'll have a chance to present uh, their own budget in February of 2021, uh, you know, hopefully that it will reflect increases, hopefully in hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, which is what we need. Now, what my fear is, is that uh, with all the spending that this country's had to do for other important things like COVID-19, that it's going to put pressure on the budget process. And it may be very difficult, you know, going forward to find new funding. So, you know, a lot of money is being spent on the Great America Outdoors Act and COVID-19. And so it'll be... Uh, It'll be interesting to watch to see how much money is allocated to the appropriation committees for their appropriation to various agencies uh, in the government. So we'll be the National Park Service will be competing uh, in a very tough environment, I think. Well, and certainly, um, you know, if COVID hangs on and we see a similar rush to the outdoors at places such as Crater Lake and Yellowstone and Grand Canyon experience this year, is the Park Service going to have enough staff in those places to manage the, the crowds? No, I don't think so. Uh, and it's going to take some time, and it's going to take money to fill those jobs. I mean, we've lost over 3,000 positions, and uh, twenty over 20% 20 of our ranger force has been decimated, and about the same kind of number with our maintenance staff. Now, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of positions that we once had. We've gone from something like uh, somewhere around 23,000 FTEs down to 18,000 FTEs. And so now that's a huge loss at a time when visitation's at its all-time high and when the number of parks at their all-time high. 
And, uh, you know, it's hard to use high tech to replace the work that those individuals perform. Uh, it's not like a factory where you could put robots and so forth and, and lieu of people, thankfully. So it's going to be it's going to be a tough time moving forward. You know, I don't, I don't really have great answers for it. I know that uh, we've relied more and more on uh, French groups to fund projects. And we used to say that French groups provided funding for the icing on the cake, with the cake being basic operations. Uh, but now French groups are funding the cake as well. Uh, they're doing things that uh, were against policy in years past. Uh, France money was not to be used, or volunteer money either, for that matter, for basic operations. The world is very different today. Well, as your good friend Carolyn Ward would suggest, um, that cake is crumbling. Yeah, well, she's, she's right. You know, that they've taken responsibility in the Blue Ridge Parkway for the Cone Manor estate. Uh, for uh, repairing that. And that and that idea began before my eight years there and beginning in 2005. Dan Brown was thinking the same thing. Gary Everhart, who was there for 22 years, was thinking the same thing because there, there are just not enough money. You know, the Blue Ridge Parkway, I, the uh, county manager, Roanoke County, once asked me what the Parkway's budget was and at the time it was about fifteen and a half million dollars. He laughed and said his fire department had a bigger budget than that. Christian, you mentioned the Grand Staircase National Monument a while ago. Um, there's been talk that President-elect Biden will restore the original boundaries of both Bears Ears and Grand Staircase National Monuments, and perhaps then some. Have you heard any update to those rumors? <laughs> The answer to that is no, um, but I think there's one thing that I've learned in our work, both at NPCA and the National Parks Action Fund, which is our political arm that I run. And we ran ads, uh, national ads on several park issues over the election season. And I will tell you that the ads that we ran on Bears Ears on the protection future protection of bears ears did the best in terms of resonating with the public. And so I think the public really does expect that if the Biden administration wants to show its support for conservation and protecting sacred lands, that restoring bears ears, at least to what it was under the Obama administration is something that needs to happen. So that would be the 1.35 million acres for Bears Ears, and then, um, you know, Grand Staircase is over 2 million acres, and it's in three chunks right now. And so making Grand Staircase Escalani its contiguous self again will be really important. And also getting rid of those awful, awful management plans that were written specifically the one for Grand Staircase Escalani and going back to the 2000 plan. And Kurt, you know this because you live in Utah and um, I know you've traveled down um, to that part, that neck of the woods. But one of the issues that used to be a huge problem down there was rampant off-road vehicle use. And and it's really important that we put that uh, transportation system and that road system back in place at Grand Staircase so the resources don't get pummeled. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
I have personally driven on many of those roads through Grand Staircase, and I've also taken a very hard look at the ones that we put boulders in front of and um, restricted access to, but it's the resources down there are, um, for as much as it is the Grand Staircase, the streams and, and rivers and other features in the park are, are some, some of them are delicate resources that need that need the protection. And so restoring that monument will be key to, you know, the future protection of, of the Southern Utah area, including the other national parks that surround these, these two monuments. I mean, this is part of this, you know, wonderful area from Bryce to Canyonlands that has been protected over time and, and still needs to be protected. So <clears throat> we're hoping that the Biden folks see what we see, which is the incredible level of enthusiasm the public has for protecting these Utah monuments. And I mean, I personally love them so much and they've been such a part of my life in the last 20 years. And, and I know a lot of people feel that way that travel down to Utah and live in the area. So, so let's hope they do something early. Sure. Sure. Um, we're just about out of time, but there is one um, pretty important topic left on my, my sheet here. The president-elect is a believer in climate change and wants to do as much as possible to combat it. Might we expect part of his work to include designating additional national monuments that could protect the natural landscape and biodiversity and minimize the loss of forests and prairies that could tie into the initiative to protect 30% of the planet for nature by the year 2030. I'm so glad you brought this up because um, I think there is so much that can be done. And, you know, um, I think sometimes folks think about national monuments and these big designations, um, but there's so much that we can do to protect places and especially protect the ecosystems around parks. I mean, it's not just Everglades, it's, the whole ecosystem around the Everglades that needs protection. It's not just even the Great Smokies, it's the forests around the Great Smokies. Same thing with Yellowstone and all of these places that we hold so dear. But these places cannot alone protect the animals and the plants and the rivers and the streams. Um, they have to be part of a connected landscape. And so I think in terms of people thinking about this level of protection that we need to provide, um, all of these places is we have to think about these connections, wildlife corridors, river corridors, and figure out ways that we can protect, you know, the migration of all these creatures that we care about from birds to mammals and make sure that we can sustain the natural environment and really create a baseline of expectations for what we want. I think, you know, you live in Park City because it's a beautiful place and um, I know I shouldn't be telling anyone that, but it is a wonderful place and it's important that we protect, you know, all of these areas, whether they're national forests or national parks and make sure that the nature that people have grown up around continues to thrive in all of these places. So I do think there's room to look at more national monuments or more protected acreage, but I think even what's more important in this country is to really make sure that we can um, protect the ecosystems. And one of the things I really love looking at are the Okmulgee maps in Georgia. You know, in the Dingle Bill, we were able to, to expand the Okmulgee um, monument, but we were also able to look at the river corridor and the recreation opportunities and also the protection for tribal areas. And so 
you know, all of these things are so well interconnected with each other. And just like Katahdin is connected to the Appalachian Trail and all of these other places are, I think it's really key to look at these quarters, if you will, that are going to protect natural migration and um, and riverways and, and other areas like that. So I think the key to this is to work with local communities, to work with tribes and get these incremental levels of protection in place so the parks aren't islands. Phil, is this something your organization um, might take an active role in, in in terms of identifying um, potential landscapes to be included? Yeah, and I, and I think we, uh, you know, one of the things that when we talk about uh, backlogs, we fail to mention that there's a $5 billion backlog in land acquisition for the National Park Service. And I, I think about E.O. Wilson, who talks about the half Earth, not just 30%, but half the Earth. Uh, in order to sustain the 7 billion people who live on this planet. I look at uh, I look at places like Blue Ridge Parkway in East in the mountains, something I know well. You know, the, they are the, uh, provide for the headwaters of uh, 16 ecosystems, 16 watersheds, you know, which are very important, not only to the natural communities, but also to those communities that adjoin the park. And so we've got to look, for, and, we, and I think one of the things we got to do is, is to revalue the land. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, it's not worth anything. There's nothing there except your future as a, as a civilization, you know. And I think we've got to find a new way to value these, these special places that we need so badly in order to have a sustainable world. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a great interconnectedness that we have to take greater appreciation of. And I think that's one thing that we learned um, in lobbying for the Great Outdoors Bill is how much experience matters to people, how much, um, you know, these places in and of themselves, um, even if folks don't feel, you know, don't know the value in terms of the watershed, they, they want the experience, they want to be able to go experience these places in their backyards and elsewhere. And I think um, that was a huge driver for getting the Great American Outdoors bill done and, and especially the Land and Water Conservation Fund side of it. And that's the other area where I think um, now that we have $900 million a year that are absolutely going into LWCF, I think it's such an opportunity to leverage that acquisition money to buy you know, land that is going to connect these places together. And so I think that, again, we've talked about criteria a lot on this, this today's podcast, but I think there's a lot that Biden could do with the LWCF money to um, create these connections with communities and landowners. So there's, I think there's just a lot of hope in terms of, um, of uh, how we can leverage these investments. Um, and, and now Congress has to give the money. It's mandatory. So you know, we, now we really do have that pot of money that won't fluctuate anymore so that our friends at Land Trust can go out and actually start talking to people about corridors and the importance of um, of getting them and looking at easements and things like that. So I think hopefully there's a real, there's going to be a real shot in the arms starting next year in terms of um, talking to landowners and others in states and counties about um, making these connections and, you know, having places permanently protected. Yeah. Phil, Kristen, it's been quite a year. Um, 2021 is going to be quite a year as well. There's going to be a lot of 
uh, hope coming forward and a, a lot of change. And um, it'll be interesting to see how it unrolls. And I'm sure we'll be talking again not too far down the road. Thanks for joining me. Yes, today. happy holidays. Yeah, yeah, happy holidays to you. Thanks. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll kick off 2021 with a look at the Appalachian Trail, which started out as a vision in the mind of Benton McKay 100 years ago. On the Traveler website over the coming days, we'll also be looking back at some of the top news and feature stories from the past 12 months. And keep watch for our second annual Threatened and Endangered Parks Package of Stories. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.